Welcome to the Nonprofit Exchange Podcast. Stories by leaders for leaders to help you raise the bar on your own excellence to release the potential inside of you. Now, here's today's podcast. Greetings, everyone. Welcome to this episode of the Nonprofit Exchange. We're six years into this interview process with amazing people that have amazing things to share. And even though we've had similar topics or the same topic, people have a different spin on it, a different set of observations and utilizations for those skills. We're here to help nonprofit leaders and clergy um, upgrade their skills and learn some business principles to embed into your organization. Now, we don't use them the same as they're used in business but we must learn some of these good sound principles for running what amounts to a tax exempt business, whether it's a 501c3, a 501c6, a nonprofit or a religious institution. Today, we're gonna focus on leadership skills for clergy. However, this is applicable to anybody in any area of leadership. And we're gonna be talking about um, a fascinate assessment and we're going to use Hugh Blue as an example. And I'm sure those of you who know me will not be surprised by any of the results that we talk about. So Kathleen Panning, welcome to the Nonprofit Exchange. And tell people a little bit about yourself. Well, thank you, Hugh. It's a pleasure and an honor to be here with you today. Um, I am a retired Lutheran pastor. I've been ordained for 40 years years. <laughs> I say that with hesitation because it doesn't seem possible. Um, and I've served in congregations of about all sizes. Uh, my first parish assignment was in two small rural congregations. Um, and I was there for seven and a half years, which was far longer than any of my predecessors. And so the last two and a half years of that, uh, I tended to feel like I was butting my head against a brick wall and couldn't figure out why. And nobody had taught me anything about uh, congregations that are used to a turnover after a certain number of years and what happens to the mindset of a congregation. They go so far with you and then expect you to leave. And don't go any further. And so I was going further with them and they weren't uh, equipped understanding why they should try something new or different. So those last two and a half years were pretty hard. And then I moved to a congregation of about 6,000 members, uh, one of five full-time pastors on the staff there. And so totally different experience. And uh, so I had a more limited portfolio uh, doing some specific things within the ministry. And, you know, I thought things were going great. I was going to be there for a long time. And um, a new lead pastor came in. And about nine months later, I was given the choice of either resigning or being fired. And I, I don't usually tell this, but I mean, that was such a blow. Um, I had never experienced anything like that before. And um, it, it hurt tremendously. It, um, I felt shame. Uh, I felt like I'd let my family down. Um, and it was, it was a really difficult thing for me to experience. 
but it also opened my eyes to the reality that I had not gotten training in seminary to be really a leader. I'd gotten a lot of training about um, biblical materials, about theology and church history, and a little bit about pastoral care, and some things about worship and worship leadership, and those kinds of things, but not about leadership per se. And I started looking around at my fellow clergy people and realized they really didn't have much of a better clue than I did unless they had been in business prior to that. And most of us at that point in time had not had that experience. I went into ministry right out of, uh, went to seminary right out of college and then right into ministry. And so really didn't have any of that. And um, so I went through four units of clinical pastoral education and um, moved to a different part of the country with my husband and who is also a pastor uh, in the Lutheran church now. And we became pastors of a congregation together and um, which was another dynamic, uh, a clergy couple and navigating uh, all of that. But the interesting thing was, in the meantime, I had also started to find mentors and people, uh, some within the church, but a lot of them outside of my faith, um, as to uh, some leadership ideas and some things to learn and grow in myself, as well as understanding other people, getting much better listening skills than I had had, and uh, what that could be. And that proved to be extremely critical in this call that my husband and I had together because um, it was about, oh, what was it, about two years into that ministry, um, the congregation ended up being in a, the beginnings of what turned out to be a six-year-long legal battle over where someone was buried in the church cemetery. And um, the uh, a member of the congregation sued the widow of the person who was buried and the congregation over where this individual was buried. And navigating that leadership board and other members of the congregation to keep the congregation hopefully from splitting and uh, to provide good leadership in that time, it was critical that I had had some of these other experiences which I'd never got in seminary and which I hadn't had up until. And so um, I conti I've continued to learn, continued to grow and look for people who can help me understand leadership and be able to share that with others. Um, I've been a mentor uh, and field education supervisor for 14 years for students from seminary uh, and helping them get some ideas and navigating through some of this as well. Uh, now I'm retired and found this um, assessment tool, which is very different than any other kind of assessment um, than, that I'd ever taken before. And it's turning into a very useful tool for clergy, for uh, nonprofit boards, uh, for the leadership boards within congregations. 
and it's very easy. I just took it this morning. It didn't take me hardly any time. And then you and I looked at it and says, "Oh, not surprised, but it's 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 a uh, it's it's amplifying some things that I just need to stay in touch with." Um, it's seventy four, almost seventy four, seventy three and three quarters. Um, or I am learning more today than I ever have before. Uh, you know, I specialize in leadership development, but I'm still studying it. I'm still learning. So I find people that say, oh, I don't need that. And I think, hmm, they're dangerous. Uh, so um, I spent a career, I spent a 40-year career in the church as well as music director and from 120-member size congregation to 12,000. So I was one of a cast of thousands, but a, a strategic position in middle management because you know, I had the responsibility for designing and leading worship um, in multiple, multiple forms. Now, the Lutherans have a little more, I think, a little more rigid pattern of worship than Presbyterians or, or Methodists. We've sort of gotten away from our Book of work, Worship or Book of Common Worship. I, um, I'll tell a funny story myself. I was in, in Moorhead, Minnesota, mm. in, with that Concordia, studying with Renee Clausen, uh, famous Very sport. Lutheran territory. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So I, I was there on a Sunday, so I made the mistake of looking for a Presbyterian church in Minnesota. Hi <laughs> <laughs> so, there. <laughs> very rare, very rare. So um, it doesn't matter what name you have on the door for the institution. The problems that you've identified are generic. And, and it's, it's not just clergy, but it's, it, it, you're so right. There, there are no, there are very few seminaries that do a program on leadership. Now, my friend, um, Bishop Willow, William Willimon, was on this show last year, and he's uh, out of the Bishop uh, Episcopacy. He's, he's back at Duke Divinity School, and he's teaching you know, clergy students, um, divinity students, about leadership, because he says nothing happens without leadership, and we have a huge deficit. So yeah. um, he had a little different take than you're going to have. So tell me, why is it important for us to know more about ourselves that we get from an assessment. Now, there's multiple assessments out there, and you and I talked before we, we went on. So it really doesn't matter the instrument. I particularly like this one because it's easy to take, and there's a lot of information on the back end, which is pretty rough. I mean, it's dead on for me. So why is having this view of self and this view of how others see you, how is that helpful to the leader first then we'll, after that, let's talk about how it's helpful to a board or a congregation or a membership of, of our charity. Right. Well, first of all, just to make people understand, the um, other assessments like Myers-Briggs, DISC, Kobe, all the ones that uh, Strength Finders, all of those, they're very good. They're based on psychology. And this one is not it's based on anthropology, neuroscience, um, and a bunch of uh, sociology and a bunch of other things. And uh, also marketing. The woman who developed it, Sally Hogshead, comes out of a marketing background. And uh, she was an award-winning marketer in her mid-20s, which is highly unusual. Um, and she developed this after a three-year period of intensive study to try and figure out, you know, there are certain brands that attract people and why. 
What is it about those brands that people find fascinating? Things like Nike. Uh, she helped develop the tagline for Nike. You all know that. Just do it. You know, just do it. And so why is it that people find that kind of a brand and that tagline uh, fascinating? And so she that took her on this road of um, discovery and the study. And she came up with this assessment and narrowed it down to the most essential questions, 28 of them, as opposed to the other ones that have like several hundred perhaps. Um, so that's why it only took you about 10 minutes to do this. And yet it's spot on. This assessment does not tell us how we see the world, which is what the other ones do. This one tells us how others see us. Um, you know, I call the other ones an inside out perspective. This one's an outside in perspective. And I don't know about you, Hugh, but when I was growing up, uh, there were things about the way I did things and whatever that some people said were great. But there were other things that people said, oh, you should be more like so-and-so. <laughs> uh, yeah, I was a quieter kid and not as outgoing um, as, and there were times where people would tell me, oh, you get, you need to be more outgoing. You need to do more of this. You need to do that more of that. And yet they were taking one of my God-given gifts and saying, it's not right. It's not good enough. And so the outside-in perspective here helps us see some of those God-given gifts that sometimes we don't know that other people see in us when we're at our best. And how those gifts can really be tools and God-given ways to share the message. Uh, in, for clergy, it's sharing the message about God's love. And so... One of the reasons I really love the assessment, uh, because it helps us see ourselves a little bit better about how others see us when we are at our best, and how to then maybe use that more as we are a leader. You know, what are the gifts that we have that can help other people see that message? What are the gifts that we have that we can use to bring other people along um, and to, to open up and to, uh, you know, develop the ministry of the congregation? So I think, I think what this prompts a, a question for me um, and I've always had a problem with how we interpret the golden rule. Mm -hmm. you know, treat others as you would have them treat you. Well, no, I would, if people do that to me, I get angry. I want them to treat me like I want to be treated. And not everybody has the same standard. So if I treat everybody else like I want to be treated, they get upset. <laughs> you know, I'm very direct. I'm, I'm very structured. I like things in order. I'm a recovering Presbyterian decently and in order. You know, it, it's, it's, there, there's a, there's a way I see the world and um, doesn't mean it's right or wrong. It's just my preference. So talk about um, how fascinate helps a leader to understand others, not only yourself, but others. And, and do they have to take the assessment for this to be effective both ways? 
Um, it helps if you take it, if uh, like everybody on your leadership team uh, or the staff were to do it. But even as the, you know, if you're a solo pastor or priest, rabbi, imam, whatever, in your community, you can still do this. The more you understand this and all of the, um, the variety of ways that this comes through, be able to start seeing the other the gifts in other people. Um, let me give you an example. Uh, one of the congregations that I served, there was a, a young, uh, I would, a younger man on the uh, church board uh, who was working with the youth. And um, he got all excited about, uh, they were going to be going to uh, a national gathering in summertime. And so he got all excited about that and started uh, some way of doing some fundraising and getting the kids involved with that. And after uh, a couple of months at the board meeting, people were asking him how things were going. And then he was saying, oh, we're working on a ski trip. And it's like, all of a sudden, what happened to the other things? And so he was so excited about each new thing that sometimes the ball kind of gets dropped or got dropped on what he was starting before. And in the Fascinate um, material, uh, he would be somebody who is high in innovation, very creative, always loving new ideas, and a fountain of new ideas at times, if really, really high in that. And somebody who gets one idea and is there for a while, and then it's on to the next one, and on to the next one. And sometimes those other things got, you know, dribbled along down the way. And that got very frustrating to other people on the committee and to the other uh, adults who were helping with the youth group. But as I got to understand and thinking back, because I didn't have this when I was at that congregation, but thinking back on that, to be able to then pair him with somebody who is more detail-oriented, who could help keep him on track and focused and could help do the planning and the other things that were uh, important to following through would be very helpful. So instead of seeing him as, you know, somebody who can't get things done, could see him as somebody who had a wonderful gift of being very creative and then pairing him with somebody else who had another wonderful gift of the details and the follow through so that together that would be much more advantageous. That is brilliant. I um, years ago interviewed another friend, uh, Cal Turner, who went to his leadership board um, at Dollar General and said, my father founded this company and I got this job as uh, chair of the board and president because of my genes, not my skill but you got the skills, I've got the vision, we're gonna go public. And what he said to me is, Hugh, leadership is about defining your gaps and finding good people to fill those gaps. Right. And um, we teach in Center Vision, we don't teach strengths and weaknesses, we teach skills and gaps. Just because I don't do something a certain way is, is like somebody else or that's not my top skill, doesn't mean I'm weak in it. So what I do is I find somebody to do the editing for the writing right. that I do because, uh, and she's watching this, because I throw out a bunch of ideas and 
and it's hard to go back and see it, what I've written and prove it and then see if I've said something dumb or said the wrong word, like two, two or two, um, mm -hmm. spelled it incorrectly. And so looking at those gaps is, is um, probably letting go of some of the old habits that we inherited or we experienced. So part of the self-discovery is looking at our blind spots. Now, I just took this this morning and where did I come out? Bulldog, what was that I came out? Uh, ringleader. Ringleader, yes. <laughs> you weren't surprised, you said. No, because as I looked over the results, well, let me back up a little bit. For people to know, there are seven um, advantages that this assessment shows. And we each have all seven of these, but one is the one that's our primary way of communicating our highest value. And then there's the secondary one that we're equally adept at using. And by combining those two, you get a graph of seven by seven. And so that means there's 49 different archetypes, possibilities. So yours comes out as pa um, power as your primary and secondary as passion. And so the archetype for that is the ringleader. But if we flipped those and you, you were using more of passion and power was taking a back seat at a moment, you would be the people's champion. And so we can easily flip back and forth between those. So, so it depends. I'm sorry. What we just talked about, to keep going there, is if, if I have another person or other people on my team that have taken the assessment, can then I find the person with the complementing skills that would right. fit in there? Okay. Right, right. Um, so one of, to take that a little further, if um, like a time when maybe a congregation's going into uh, a building program or something, um, they need somebody uh, or, you know, considering today's reality, needing to do some fundraising, rethinking things, how we do things, whatever, uh, in light of, you know, the current realities of life. And they put together a, a committee or a team to look at this and, you know, think of through what kinds of people do you need on that team? If you put together a team for building a new building where everybody's got a vision of what the building should look like and what it all needs, and you don't have somebody in there with all the details and who can do the budgeting and the financial stuff, things aren't going to go so well with that. Uh, so you need somebody in there with the vision, you know, the, the innovation, and you need somebody in there who has the kind of the take control, the CEO type, which is what the power is like you have. And, but you also need people in there with the detail orientation to be able to do that. And so that can show you when you're putting together a committee or a team, you know, what kinds of people do we need on here? And so then look around and see the people in your um, leadership board or even within your congregation who has these abilities, maybe not a specific skill, but a personality assessment. If you're hiring somebody new for um, a, a staff position, you know, we look for somebody with certain skills. Great. But what about the personality to fit in with the rest of you? That's equally important 
because you can have somebody with all the right skills who personality-wise does not mesh. And so to put these things together mm. as a way of finding uh, you know, the right kind of combinations of people uh, as a way to, to do that can be really powerful within uh, a church or a nonprofit organization. Now, this word power is empowering. It's also disturbing because mm -hmm. part of my methodology is teaching that, well, the conductor, let's take a conductor paradigm. Now, right. a conductor is perceived by non-conductors to be a dictator. Well, I got to tell you, um, I got this little stick here and this little white stick doesn't make, I can't make anybody do this because I can't beat people with it. Um, so the conductor is an influencer. We influence people. Now in Atlanta, I hired members of the Atlanta Symphony, very, very tight union, very precise. You know, they came in, they dared me, you know, they, they, they're used to working with top, top notch conductors from all over the world. And here's Hugh Ballou hiring them for his church. And so, you know, I got 50 players there and they're daring me. So what I can do is I can't boss them, but what I can do is influence them. But it's important that I've mastered the vision where I'm going and can articulate it. It's also important that I worked on my skill set. Right. Now, now the, the, the orchestra is a really good model of a diverse team because not only do you have different nuances of sound, but you got personalities that go with those different instruments. You got it. <laughs> so, got so. So let's pick on you a minute. Now, I came out strong in power. Now, mm -hmm. um, clergy are in a position of power. Yes. And there's a power differential between clergy and church member. Mm -hmm. And that's where clergy get in trouble uh, many it. times with personal relationships. So um, there's the improper use of power. And that's not just in the church. But, but um, okay. in the church, it's magnified because people, oh, it's the, it's the pastor. Um, so there's there's this sacredness about the leadership that people don't challenge. Um, now we're starting to challenge some of the misbehaviors, but it's there's a paradigm there that mm -hmm. that clergy play into and that congregations expect. So there's there's the power piece, but there's also the the functioning piece, the over functioning. And so the 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 pastors that I hear complaining about nobody will step up to help are the pastors that over function. And so people don't see a need to help. So there's a reciprocity to what we do as leaders. You know, over-functioning, the reciprocity is under-functioning. And the improper use, even unaware use of power, um, stifles the creative input from other people because they don't think they have permission. So talk about how I show up as power and how that's informing me how it's you know, might be a liability or a benefit. Yeah, it becomes a liability if that's the only advantage you're using. Um, because then it goes over the top and you can become the bully. Uh, so if you think of this 49 um, grid, arc, grid of the 49 combinations, each one of those, you know, is a time where each of the advantages is doubled. So power plus power is a problem, <laughs> is what it amounts to. When power is your primary and your secondary, at that time, that's all that you're using, then it becomes a real problem. And that's true for any of the advantages. When we're doubling up on 
one of those advantages, then it becomes um, what uh, Sally Hogshead calls um, the um, double trouble. And so, uh, you know, one of the ways to think about power doubled up is somebody who becomes the bully, the dictator, somebody who uh, uses that baton to, uh, you know, um, talk to uh, the lead uh, first chair in the violin is, why can't you ever get anything really come down hard on and, you know, bully people and that kind of thing. But by, by pairing your power with passion, which is your secondary, that's the people orientation. That's one who comes in and is concerned about relationships. That's the advantage that talks about understanding where people are and being able to read people's emotions. And because you have that combination, then you can use that power to inspire people in the orchestra. So they want to follow you. It's not that you're the cutthroat leader it's you're the inspiring force and, you know, and giving direction to that. And so if it was power plus innovation, which is your third, we'll talk about that in a moment, um, then you become a change agent. You That's become me. somebody yeah who, can, yeah, who can bring about change. So when you draw on that innovation part of you, you can help them change your perspective on how a piece sounds. As a leader in center version, you can help people understand uh, some ways to change their behavior and their leadership styles. That's the beauty of it. And God has called me in many of my ministries to be a change agent. Mm -hmm. And, and you know, the last three churches I served were in crisis when I got there. And so uh, I used that, those properties, not even knowing about them. I had, um, um, right. So, so I'm thinking about there have been conductors that have been dictators. Toscanini was was a terrorist, and uh, George Zell, um, they got it done. You know, people weren't happy, but they they got this this higher level of performance because they were such dictators. That mm -hmm. does not work in today's world, and we don't have happy cultures, especially yeah. especially in the church. Now, there's um, there's this assumption of power by the congregation. And there's an assumption of power in nonprofits um, and in business. So this assumption of the culture, which then the leader comes in with that mantle, that, that assumption, um, how does a leader function when they're going into a culture? And there's that, like you said, in your church that had the turnover, um, there, was a, there was an organizational memory and they were ready for change. And I served a church in Alabama that had an eight-year cycle and they sent the the preachers out, I saw three in a row with, with uh, arrows in their back. It was a hatred mm -hmm. thing. So there's yeah. this, this culture thing. So how, when we come into a situation, how do we embrace what we learn from the uh, fascinated assessment to then become a better, more effective leader? Well, one of the things to know is not every pastor has power as their primary advantage. In fact, probably not a lot of them. Um, more of the ones might have passion as our primary advantage. And I, I agree with and, that. I think it's the system. So, I think it's the system right. that, that imposes it on them. 
Right. And so if the system's imposing something on us that we're, that is not consistent with who we are, then you're going to have some tensions there because they're going to be looking for us as a pastor to be a certain way and do certain things. That's not really within our personality to be able to do that, at least not well. And so that part of that then becomes talking with them and saying, you know, this is who I am. Uh, and these are the gifts that I bring and how I can lead you with these gifts. It won't be in the same way as, you know, Pastor so-and-so who was before me, but it's still a type of leadership and to help them understand that there are multiple ways to lead and it doesn't have to be a top-down power differential. Um, again, one of the congregations I served, the previous pastor, and in fact, it was the one where my husband and I served together. The previous pastor had been uh, uh, what in Lutheran circles is called a hair, hair pastora person. Uh, you know, I'm in charge. You do what I say. I put a rubber stamp on everything, you know, and if it doesn't get my rubber stamp, it ain't going to happen. So, um, you know, that was Christian and the, the church board really felt totally disempowered to be able to do anything. And we had to teach them how to be the leaders, you know, mm. to tell them, you know, this is your responsibility. This is your place within the congregation as uh, it might've been the, uh, the chair or president of the congregation. It might've been, you know, somebody in charge of a committee yes, you can do this. We can maybe talk about it at the council meeting and see if it's a good idea. But yeah, you can bring ideas here. It's safe to do that. We're not going to squash it. So, you know, it's, it's a lot of it's teaching what's okay and how to be a good leader. But that means knowing it and your own leadership style to begin with. You know, um, there's two highly dysfunctional systems in the church, it, but they don't own, own all of it. Everybody else has them too, but, but, but um, the search committee and the annual, annual, annual assessment, um, the search committee, you know, well-meaning people want to get somebody with new skills, assuming that they have all the skills of the old person and personality traits. And so there's a big disconnect. It would, would seem to me that it might be a good exercise for, um, a committee to look through an instrument like this assessment like this to identify what are they really looking for and look at all the, the other unspoken paradigms of personality mm -hmm. and performance. Yeah. Um, that would be one way to use this. Another way would be to have that, you know, once they do that, then to ask any potential candidate to go through the assessment as well mm -hmm. and to see how well that meshes what they're looking for and uh, what kinds of paradigms they want in a leader um, and not to make somebody wear the same shoes that the previous pastor wore. You know, if, if, if I'm the, you know, the pastor that leaves, um, 
and some man comes in after me, it wouldn't be very fair to have him have to wear high heels, you know? <laughs> so, nor would it be fair for me to have to wear his Oxfords. Um, so, you know, it, it's, that's always been a, a, a tension anytime there's a pastoral change. But it's, um, now we have some other tools to help with that kind of transition and help people understand themselves, their whole congregation, and, um, and who they have as their leadership and their staff. So. I, um, when I started working in the church, there were no female pastors. That was back in the dark ages. <laughs> <laughs> so as, as we have, um, and my wife's ordained in the Methodist church, so I'm very much in favor of, of clergy of both genders. Um, but we bring different gifts. And, and I've seen um, um, women pastors want to emulate a male pastor that they grew up with or were modeled or were mm -hmm. like. So it's, it, this is also allowing us to embrace our own unique skills as, as men or women in, in any kind of leadership role. We, um, and women have, have entered into the workforce in a lot of areas and bringing a whole different paradigm, a whole different skill set. So the, the big fallacy for me is the equality, equality fallacy, which is the opposite of integrity. It's the equity factor we need to look at. What is equitable and how do we, how do we bring our gifts, as your gifts as a female, into the place? So it would seem to me knowing self and knowing the value we bring and not having the to wear the army boots of the previous person that would open the eyes, not only of the leader, but the search committee, the, the primary teams, so that from the start, you have a, a fair chance of succeeding. I thoroughly agree you know, that, that um, it would have helped me so much earlier in my ministry to know these things about myself, you know, what, where my gifts are, in that and where um, where my gifts aren't um, and and to be able then to to look at ministry through those lenses and to to be honest with myself and with the search committee or with a congregation um, you know I knew early on that uh, being the youth leader in a congregation was not my gift um, but I, I did not know that there were some other things that I can do them. I can do them very well, but they also drain my energy. And so that's, there's a third component to this assessment. And that is which of the seven is what's called your dormant. And it's the one where if you have, if you live in that space or you have to use it a lot, it becomes like slogging, as Sally Hogsett's words are, like slogging through quicksand. Uh, and for you, Hugh, it's the alert advantage, um, which is somebody, you talked about uh, some, needing somebody else to go through and edit things for you. If you had to do all that editing all of the time, you know, what would that do to your energy? Yeah. Yeah, it's exhausting. Yeah, because alert is a lot, all about details, and it's all about finding potential problems or um, things that could trip things up and trying to safeguard against those. 
Well, so that, that defines me because I, I am a problem solver and I immediately notice inconsistencies. Well, th there are different ways to be problem solvers. So with the alert, it's the, uh, the problems, preventing problems and uh, using details in the process. So it's the details, getting into the details of it that can be, and for you, that's what would be, um, be exhausting. Yeah, you know, going it, through the it, manuscript. That, the manuscript of music, now that's just the opposite there. That's what's empowering is to mm -hmm. prepare for rehearsals because that's exhaustive. You know, you study for hours before you have the first rehearsal. So it's, you know, you're actually preventing mistakes because you know how to lead the rehearsal. Right. So that part of me, you know, we, we have this unforgiving structure, but we have to be creative within it. So there's this, this tension of structure and creativity, which I really thrive on and preparing the detail and then manifesting it is the, the ultimate for me, preparing the strategy and then launching it. I don't like the maintenance part. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So, you know, if you get really down deep into that alert part, that becomes exhausting for you. And um, just to know that uh, it's not that you can't do it and yeah. you do do it, uh, but you pair it then with the innovation part of it, the creativity and bringing that out and preventing the, the problems so that you can have a good rehearsal. So you can bring forth the beauty of that music that kind of mitigates any of the detail stuff for you and, you know, lifts the whole part of it to a higher level. And, and I want to go back to, we're talking specifically about clergy, but these mm -hmm. are universal. And right. um, I've had a, I've had a term as, uh, well, I've been a guest conductor for the symphony here, but I've had a term as the president of the board and I took a second half of an un, unfulfilled term um, for various reasons, but I had, I'm building on what the, the past person did and I'm setting it up, setting it up so the next person can build on what, I've done. So mm -hmm. it's been a very transparent process. Now, um, there were some bad days in the past with any organization, but this one especially, and we've put together a pretty strong organization with a very robust plan for the future, and it's working quite well. Now, the idea of staying on and working the plan is not at all exciting to me, but, mm -hmm. you know, re reframing it, resetting it, solving the problem, and setting a new pathway, that's where I live. So is that consistent yeah. with what you see? Yeah, that's consistent with the innovation. That's very consistent with the innovation part of it, uh, of who you are. And also, um, one of the other ones that, you know, is kind of the fourth one for you is prestige. Um, so, uh, it, which is always looking for excellence, raising the bar, making things a little bit better. And uh, it's, it's talking about how can we, um, it's kind of the, the always building a better mousetrap idea, but for somebody in your position, what you were just talking about is how can we do this better next time? Not that it's not good enough necessarily, but mm -hmm. let's try even something more, you know, how can we get this uh, organization going? So it's, it's on a really good footing and can keep going. That's precisely it. And, and, yeah we have to take out the fear of inadequacy. 
And I can't tell you how many power leaders I work with that feel inadequate. You know, Robert Shaw changed the choral music in the world in his lifetime. Oh, yes. I, I lived in Atlanta when he died. I remember somebody coming to the pulpit and announcing it at a church meeting and said, Robert mm -hmm. Shaw just died. And the, oh. the obituary in the paper said that he felt inadequate as a leader, as a conductor. Yeah. And the wow. same year, the preacher that built this 12,000 member church I was serving died after I got there, not because I got there, but um, <laughs> pretty much worn out his body. And um, he grew it from 2000 to 12,000. The obituary said the same thing. He felt inadequate. So they were driven to, for, for excellence from that. So they, those are examples where they've taken this insecurity and used it for good. Many times, that's not that's not the fact. So many leaders are are limited by their insecurity of self. How would this help somebody look at that dynamic and be be more confident? Uh, well, it's to me it's building to know. Hey, there are these things that I'm really good at. These are really good gifts that I have, and I can use all seven. But, you know, this one and the, the second one and maybe a third one are things that I can really excel in and be good at. None of us is ever called to be good at everything. So, you know, to, to take that myth away from uh, ourselves and feeling that we have to be all things to all people, which there are a lot of clergy who feel that way. But, you know, um, you know, but to, to see, you know, here are ways in which I really add value and really good value and to play up those parts of ourselves, um, not to a point of being, you know, haughty or inappropriate in any way, but to say, you know, this is the gifts God has given me. Let us rejoice and be glad in that. And let me use these gifts in my ministry with you to the best that I can that. And, you know, um, and then let me draw on the rest of you uh, to help with the other parts of this. Because we are a congregation together. And my understanding of ministry is, yes, I am the called and ordained pastor if I'm leading a congregation, but all of us are ministers. All of us are part of the ministry. And so we need to all be involved in doing things. And Absolutely. all of these gifts are there. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and you're, you're a different model of clergy that goes into business. Um, what I've seen too much of, this isn't everybody, was somebody that, that left left the active ministry to be a consultant. And so they're teaching the same things that they thought they thought they did or ought to have done. And it's sort of like a um, repeated pattern of downward functioning. What you've done is bring in an entirely different paradigm to the conversation and to the skill set. So I want to, can we go over those? You call them advantages. I think in Myers-Briggs it's called preferences, is it? So I, 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 for people um, yeah. that are listening on the podcast, I'll put this image on, on the podcast page. But um, if you're looking at the video, which you can find at the, T-H-E, the nonprofit exchange.org. And so we've got about five, six, seven, eight minutes here, seven minutes. So um, yeah. discover these different, different um, whatever right. those, those are called. Yeah. Those are the those are the seven advantages on the on the uh, 
graph there. Um, and power is, you know, in no particular order here because there's none is one, they're not any one of them that's better than the other. Um, so power is um, the language of confidence. So if we talked about these as kind of different languages that people speak, um, that's kind of how we um, listen to these. So power is the language of confidence. Uh, trust is the language of stability. And so people who are very high in trust, which uh, is a lot of people in the church, they like to keep things stable and the same. And we could talk about that as a whole dynamic with things, um, especially when you get somebody who's high in innovation and wants to change things. <laughs> and you have other people in the congregation, no, let's, we're just fine with everything, do it the same way over and over and over and over and over again. So how to work with that? Um, that's a whole nother conversation. But trust is the language of stability. And they are, yes, people who are high in trust really do um, like keeping things pretty stable. Um, loyalty is another um, word that can be used for people with trust. Uh, prestige is the language of excellence. How can we make this even better? Not from the sense of, you know, it's never good enough, but how can we make it even better? Passion is the language of relationships. Um, somebody who's really high in passion goes into a meeting and is asking everybody how is how are their kids how is their spouse how you know different family members and things like that hard sometimes to get them to sit down and be quiet because they're always asking about other people um, mystique is the language of listening it's the person who uh, will sit in a meeting and you may not even know that they're paying attention, but then you ask them something and they can come out with something that's really profound and really puts some things together because they listen really carefully. Um, innovation is the language of creativity. Uh, how can we make this something new or different? Thinking outside the box is uh, a trait of somebody who's high in innovation. And alert is um, the language of details. Uh, give me the details. I, I um, you know, uh, the old uh, Hawaii Five-O or whatever was uh, facts. Just the facts, please. Uh, you know, the the detective type of person wants to get in there and find out all the details. A researcher type of person, um, that kind of thing. And so those are the seven advantages, and we. You can combine them in 49 different ways. Uh, well, 42 if you take out the ones where they're doubled up on each one of them. Um, so that's, um, those are the different ways. And I, I've got a little ebook that I put together about what happens when we double up on each of those. I call them alligators. You know, sometimes in congregations, we talk about those individuals that we have in the congregation who are kind of always biting at us. And it's oftentimes because they are doubling up on one of those advantages and uh, how to deal with some of those alligators that can sometimes ruin our days. <laughs> so um, that's a little ebook I have available. Oh, yeah. I never heard the alligator thing, but um, there's, there's a book called Antagonist in the Church by how, and um, it's the, the people that you never can please. Right. <laughs> so, right. And I, you know, I had a big church in Atlanta. The, 
they, they told me there's only six antagonists, but they moved around a lot. So it seemed like there were a lot more of them. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's remarkable. Yeah. It's remarkable, Kathleen, how what you just went through um, piggybacks on what I've been teaching for 32 years mm-hmm. and not even knowing this existed. So there's, there's a lot of consistency. We, we could have been siblings. You know, this is like <laughs> see, the, see the world through some commonality. So. Well- Except my my archetype is very different than yours. So, um, and I'm the detective. So my ah. uh, I'm alert and mystique. I'll try to behave. So, <laughs> no, you don't have to do that. Um, but so, I also have high innovation in there. So that's my third. So I'm I'm all the way to ten on innovation, passion, and power. Now, mm-hmm. does somebody ever have one that's way up and others way way down? Yes. That does happen at times. Yours are a little more even uh, all throughout all of this, but there are people whose primary advantage is like at the top of the chart there, and uh, then their dormant is, uh, you know, quite a ways down, uh, maybe even ten percent further down than that. Um, and some of those now, one of the things we talked about beforehand, there looks like three of them are all even on that. Uh, bar graph. And I'm talking about power and passion. Power is your primary passion as your secondary. So how do we differentiate between those? And innovation looks to be exactly the same. And if somebody looks at the pie chart, all three of those are 16%. But there's a little explanation next to it. Um, A commonly asked question, Um, you know, there's the assessment has uh, questions that kind of break ties and so breaks it up between even down to a tenth of a percent so uh, even though it looks like all of them are the same uh, they are, can be very off in the pie chart they're all at 16 percent but one could be 16.5 another one could be 16.1 and another one could be 15.8 and that would all come out rounded down to up to or 16.4, uh, you know, 16%. So um, they, there are tiebreakers within the questions. So, I um, I love this. I could talk all day. We've we've come up to the end of our, our time. I'm gonna oh. I'm gonna do a sponsor moment. It just kind of flies by. Um, I'm gonna do a sponsor moment and then um, I'll give you a chance to give a parting thought or a parting tip. And um, I want to make sure people, and I'm going to put it on the, uh, the, the page for this interview, but your, your website is, um, um, you, you've got a website somewhere I can't, I'm looking for. Um, yeah, it, it needs some work, but it's there. Okay, I will, I will put the link to where they can find you and um, have a chance to network with you and have conversations and um, talk about you know, how this could be advantageous. There's so many really good uses for this, this particular assessment. There's so many out there, but this coming from a different world, like you explained, uh, not the other, other instruments assessments are, are from psychology. This one's from a different place, so it's fascinating. Mm-hmm. So, um, <laughs> of course it's fascinating. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So our, our sponsor is Word Sprint, Word Sprint Prints Nonprofit Performance Magazine. You can find it at nonprofitperformance.org, nonprofitperformance.org. We're about performance and how do we raise the bar 
as leaders on our performance. So when you go to nonprofitperformance.org, you'll see the magazine. You can read it online in a flip file, flip file. But you can go to WordSprint, WordSprint.com. Bill Gelmer and his team will help you stay in touch with your tribe. You send out an annual letter raising funds, and we're coming to you now in the middle of this uh, being sequestered at home, uh, quarantined at home because we've got this virus going around the world that we can't see. So we're re rethinking how we engage with people and rethinking leadership. It's really important to stay in touch with people that matter. So Bill's process is mail, mail. People get the mail, they have it in their hands. So it's the right message to the right person and the right frequency. So we wanna stay in touch with people. So when you do come back to them and say it's time for their annual donation, they know about the work you've been doing. They, have, they feel like they've been a part of it and they know that you've used their money wisely. So wordsprint.com is where you find the place to learn about how to stay in touch with your tribe. It's top of mind marketing. And by the way, when you go to nonprofitperformance.org, um, you'll see the magazine. But when you go to The Nonprofit Exchange, it's where you'll find today's interview, thenonprofitexchange.org. And when you get there, you'll see um, this interview along with uh, six years worth of other really powerful interviews. So pick one that you like, give us some comments. But at the top of that page is a little blue join button. This is where people get together. Leaders have peer-to-peer -peer sessions on forums. Every week you get time with you. We have all kinds of resources available for you. So look at the community. Um, so when you go to the nonprofitexchange.org to look at this podcast, this interview, check out the membership of the organization. Um, Kathleen, you've got so many, I got so many neurons firing here. What do you want to leave us with today as a challenge or a thought? Okay. Uh, well, Another possible use for this for clergy is um, in working with couples. The assessment can be used with um, uh, teens down to the age or from the age of 14 on up. So in my view of this, this could be used with teenagers learning about themselves, uh, college students uh, or post high school age. Who do I, what do I want to do with my life? Who am I supposed to be? Where are my skills to go forward uh, with couples, with families, um, with congregation boards? It's got so many different possibilities with it. It can even be used, in my understanding, to help envision who your congregation is as a corporate group. What's the personality of your congregation in this paradigm? And what does that mean about your ministry? Who are you perceived as in the community? What does that mean? Especially now as we think about, like you said, going forward, how do we reimagine some ministries? What can we do maybe a little bit differently and be a little bit creative about that um, type of thing? So uh, people can connect with me um, on my website, Aflame Ministry Consulting. Dot com and also on Facebook at Aflame Ministry Consulting. Those are the two easiest ways to get a hold of me. And we'll put so. those links on the page for the podcast. So Kathleen Panning, uh, Reverend Panning, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with us today. Thank you, Hugh.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.